0: You will begin turning in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John 21. This is the last chapter in the book of John. This will be our last week in the book of John. Almost a year we've been in this book. So I hope it's been as much of an encouragement to you as it has been to me. Just a continued Lesson from this book is—it's been a real blessing to my soul. So before we go to the text today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, help us. We pray. We are desperate for our own truth, for our own affections. Um, we so willingly walk away sometimes. And largely because we want your word to say what we want it to say. Um, but it doesn't. It says what you want it to say. It's true because you said it. And so, Lord, help us to be to grab a hold of your truth as it is taught and as, as it is presented here in your Holy Scripture. Convict us of that sin where we would twist your words, which is essentially what all sin is. Convict us of that sin that we might see your word, that we might be led to the truth. Do that for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we approach John 21, I kind of alluded to this last week, but this idea of kind of like the after credit scene of a movie. You know, the last 10 or 15 years in the movie theater, you're no longer sure if you should jump up right after the movie right when the credits start, because you want to kind of wait around for these exclusive uh, post credit scenes. The purpose of these scenes are usually, I think more so in the past, were kind of like a blooper reel, something funny to watch. But now they are kind of been used to set up a sequel for the next movie, and of course you have to stick around and see that because you want to get the, all the details. So moviegoers, of course, sit around. They want to grab a glimpse of what is to come. All these superhero movies nowadays use them, which about every other movie is a superhero movie anymore. Fantasy, sci-fi movies use them. I don't really know if the other movies use them because I don't go to other movies. Um, But you get the idea, right? Uh, They want you to suffer through the credits so that you can watch the last two minutes of the movie. So that you'll be sure to go watch the sequel. It's a way of getting everyone kind of talking to build this hype up for the next, to get excited about it. And so I think John 21 is very similar to that, kind of a post credit scene for the book of John. Last week we talked about what I believe to be the climax of the book, the book centered on our belief in Christ, the signs and wonders that he did that we might believe, and we looked at that through that episode with Thomas and his doubt changing to belief, his profession of faith, his call for us to preach what Christ has done so that we might believe. And now we have these disciples, seven of them actually, fishing here in this story. It's what they do for a living. And we're going to see another miraculous act of our Lord. We're going to see a call to repentance for Peter and for us. And we're going to see a call to the work of the gospel for all of us. I think we're going to see our own struggles with those things as well as we come to this text as we as we should. And so as we come to this text I want to consider three main ideas: Peter, a stripped-down man built up; Peter, a built-up man stripped down; and then lastly John, a man with a particular calling. And so with that, let's stand together as we come to God's word, John 21, starting at verse 1. John 21, starting at verse one. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of the Canaan Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, "I'm going fishing." This was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When he had finished breakfast, Jesus t- said to Simon Peter, son, so, or Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. This he said to show the kind of death that he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? You follow me. So, the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who who has written these things, and, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books, that would be written. Amen, this is God's word. you can be seated. So before we come to this text in full, I want us to remember that there is one really big unfinished story in the Gospel of John up to this point. and that's with the Apostle Peter. We haven't really had an encounter, between himself and Jesus, concerning his denial of Jesus. Now, there doesn't need to be an encounter for Peter's eternal salvation or anything. This It isn't like Peter isn't saved up to this point and he's waiting to be saved. Peter is saved by the work of Jesus. Jesus says, it is finished on the cross. And it was. Not the work that Peter was going to do. Peter's denial no more disqualifies him than does Thomas' doubt, for instance. However, there is a broken will in the relationship between Peter and Jesus. And I think we do well to note that Jesus goes to him to restore that relationship. The two were friends. It's a good thing to have restoration. Obviously, Jesus' restoration also has more to do with, than just restoring a relationship between friends. But I think Jesus shows us here what it means to keep short accounts with those who we, who we are, have wronged or those who have wronged us. And again, we're, and in this passage, we're not given some kind of formula for repentance, nor is there kind of any secret code here with the different words of love that are used. There's several different Greek words for love being used and several Greek words for sheep being used. We should just keep this simple. I think you can get into some crazy stuff if you go a little, if you go too deep there. Uh, and another interpretive note, just a note, just to say something up front. There's nothing really going on, I don't think, with the 153 fish, other than the fact that that's just a lot of fish, and for some reason John wanted to tell us exactly how many there were. Um, and there's nothing going on there. There have been some very fascinating interpretations over the years. I encourage you to read them if you want to read something funny. Um, Perhaps the Lord has a lesson for us to learn there, but I haven't heard a convincing argument yet. Maybe he'll tell us in heaven. Maybe he won't. So, first point. Peter, a stripped-down man, built up. So here are the seven disciples. They're fishing this day. They just got up and decided they wanted to go fishing. I don't think there's anything major to read into here. Peter was a fisherman, if you remember, and several other of the disciples were fishermen, so they wanted to go fishing. They were just earning a living. Uh, apparently, they didn't catch any fish here either. Maybe they only catch fish when uh, this, the cameras aren't rolling or something, because we've never actually seen them catch any fish over the time that Jesus tells them to do it. Uh, but maybe they're actually good fishermen. Um, they caught nothing that night. But this isn't the first time that this has happened in Scripture, if you remember. Turn with me to Luke, chapter 5. Luke, chapter 5. Let's look at this other account, because I think this is instrumental in understanding what's going on here with Peter. Luke chapter 5, and I'll read the first little bit here, this story. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. Fisherman by trade, is being told by a rabbi where to go catch fish. Jesus is giving him fishing advice. This must be interesting for Peter. I don't think this is their first encounter uh, between Peter and Jesus. I just think Peter's kind of trying to figure out who this man is. Um, they didn't have they didn't catch any fish the night before, but Peter kind of accepts reluctantly. Okay, if you say so, I'll put the nets down. So here's this crazy catch of fish, so big that both boats are about to sink because there's so many fish. We've never seen anything like this. Maybe when those giant fishing boats like dump the nets and the fish spill all over the, uh, the, the whatever the part of that boat is the boat's called. I'm not a boat person, sorry. To... <laughs> but anyway, uh, these are little fishing boats. This aren't like commercial boats. So just imagine them literally full of fish. How does Peter react here? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why did he say that? Because he knew that Jesus wasn't just some normal rabbi who liked teaching from boats. He called him Lord. In the Greek, it's kurios, which over and over in the Greek Old Testament is the word for Yahweh, the name of God. Peter knows that this man, Jesus, is the Lord. But he'll spend the rest of his life figuring out what that means exactly. That's all of us, right? We all can get that. There's a sense in which we have to come to the point at which we see Jesus as our sovereign Lord, as the God of the universe. This is who he is. When he tells the fish of the sea to jump into the net, guess what they do? They get in the net as fast as they can with no argument. Remember another time when he asked Peter to go catch a fish. Remember they got to the temple, people at the temple demanded a tax, Peter and Jesus had to pay it, and they didn't have any money, so he said, Peter, go catch a fish, open its mouth, there'll be a coin in there. How can Jesus do that? That's crazy. How did it get in there? Jesus did it somehow. Why? Because he's the God of the universe. He does as he pleases. If it pleases him to have a fish eat a coin or to have a fish jump into a net, then he does it. Why? Why are we told this? Remember what John told us. Why does he do these things? So that we might believe. What did Peter do when he saw the fish? He believed. We begin our relationship with the Lord this way. We begin in awe before the Lord, confessing our sin, confessing our futility before him, stripped of our pride, as it were. And then what does he do to us over the course of our relationship with him? He builds us up. Just like he did with these men. What did he do with them? He, he went out to them on this boat Look at verse 11 there in Luke 5, you're still there. And he and when he had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and they followed him. They literally started with nothing. And he built them up. He shaped them, molded them into men that would follow after him, that would walk with him. And now we're preparing to take his message to the furthest reaches of the world. In this way, we are just like Peter and the others. People who begin recognizing their utter weakness without Jesus and in the face of Jesus, but are being built up by him, are being brought to a place where we understand the truths of scripture, the depth of the gospel. We grow through the ordinary means of grace, through prayer, through the sacraments, through fellowship, through the preaching of the word. This is how the Lord builds his people. He takes our basic confession. Which says, I am nothing, you are everything, and builds us up from that. That's a good thing. So, next I'm going to look at Peter, a built up man, stripped down. So, go back to John 21. Jesus calls the disciples in the boat. He calls to them, ask if they've caught anything. Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And so, again, I mean, can you imagine just being out in the middle of this lake and not they're seeing a man, not knowing who it is? And have you caught anything? No. They're probably wondering why I would care. But, you know, you wonder if they wanted to make up a fish story at this point. Yeah, we've caught a bunch. You know, I don't know. They, they tell the truth. No, we haven't caught anything. And so all of a sudden, this stranger instructs them. Put your nets on the right side of the boat. And you will find some. Can you imagine being out in the lake and hearing someone say, just throw your net over there and there's fish over there, I promise. It's a little odd, but they do that. This isn't their first rodeo. They've done this before. And what do they do? They drag up all these fish. They caught 153 fish, as it were. This is the second time in their lives that these men have filled the net so much that they were unable to haul it into their boats. There were so many fish. And this is one of my favorite parts of this whole book. When John, verse 7, that disciple whom, the Lord, whom, whom Jesus loved, this is John's always refers to himself in this way, when, when that disciple therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord, he knew, it's Jesus. No one else could do this. No one else could say to us, throw out your net and you'll catch fish. It is the Lord. He says that to Peter, and look what Peter does here. He puts on clothes. The text says he was stripped down. The Greek word there is literally naked. I don't know why he was fishing with no clothes on. Maybe he had some undergarment on or something. Whatever he had on, though, he added to it. He put on more clothes. Because that's what all of us do when we want to go swimming, right? Put on more clothing? That doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? It's not because of modesty. He was standing out in the middle of the lake fishing with nothing on. This man probably has no modesty. Uh, Very little, anyway. Why would he put clothes on before he swam to shore? Before he jumped in the water and swam 100 yards? Some say reverence for the Lord. Maybe that's it. However. When I think of this, it takes me back to Genesis, back to the garden, when Adam and Eve saw their shame, and they sewed clothes for themselves. And Jesus said to them, who told you you were naked? Peter knows his place in Christ. He knows he is a child of the king of the universe. And he knows of the hope that he has in the resurrection of Christ. Yet he clothes himself because of his shame. Does this resonate with anyone here? The first moment where we won't feel at least some shame will be our first moment with the Lord in glory. However, Many folks struggle with shame and guilt for various reasons. Many times they're tied together, these concepts of shame and these concepts of guilt. Peter's shame had to do with the guilt that he was feeling concerning his denial, right? Sometimes shame is through no fault of our own, but when it is, it's often accompanied by some kind of guilt as well. And so Peter, swims up to the fire that Jesus has made. Everyone else takes the boat the normal way. So they get up. Jesus is making a, fi- or making a breakfast. He's already got some fish there. But he says, go ahead and give me some more fish for breakfast. Um, I made a note that the rope wasn't broken this time when it was broken the first time. There's probably something there, but we can move on past that. Maybe th- talk about it later. Jesus shared breakfast with them. There was this kind of hush over the disciples. You can kind of imagine what's going on here. They knew it was Jesus, but they didn't want to ask him. I don't know why they didn't immediately recognize him as Jesus. I've never seen anyone in their resurrected body. And so maybe his body looked different or something. I don't know. Having no blemish, no signs of fatigue, no signs of wear would make us all look different. Maybe we'd be unrecognizable. So I kind of get this a little bit. But after they finish, the important part is that Jesus finds Peter and asks Peter an easy question, seemingly easy question. Do you love me more than these? Not the fish, not do you love me more than you love the disciples. Do you love me more than these disciples love me? Why would Jesus ask this? Remember, it wasn't too long ago that Peter denied Jesus. Peter, a disciple of Christ, strong leadership abilities, strong faith, denied the Lord three times, even calling down curses as he did so. Peter was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was there in the courtyard with Jesus as he was tried. And here he is again with Jesus. Beside this fire, and he says, "Do you love me?" Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. As in, that's a silly question. You know that I love you, Lord. And then he said to him, "Feed my lambs." Get into that a little bit later. Jesus asked him a second time, same response, same follow-up. He asked him a third time, and this time, what does the text tell us? That Peter was grieved. This really bothered Peter. He was grieved. Why was he grieved? Peter had to have been soaking this in at this point. You know, or you have to know, that Peter remembered the number of times that he denied Christ. Three times. Even the fire was the same. And You think John told us about a charcoal fire in chapter 18? And one here again in chapter 21 on accident? I don't think so. The smells, the emotions, everything is tied together for Peter. You think he kind of understood what the Lord was doing at this point, And it grieved him. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He does know everything. He knew Peter from the foundations of the world. That isn't the point of this conversation. The point of this conversation is the restoration of a relationship that had been damaged because of Peter's sin. Again, not in the eternal sense. They're not making, Peter's not being saved again in this sense. Nothing can snatch us away from Jesus, not even our own sin. However, there is a sense in which their relationship was damaged. Peter betrayed his friend and his Lord. There had to be restoration. And the type that Jesus brought was full restoration. That's why he asked him three times to undo the three times that Peter denied him. Peter was being completely restored to full communion with his Lord. So consider our own sin and how it damages our relationship with the Lord. Does it cause us to lose our salvation? No, thankfully, or we would never have it. How many times a day would we have to run to him in repentance if we lost our salvation every time we sinned? Or if there was a particular number of sins that could cause us to do that? That would be horrible. But do we still need to come to him in repentance? Absolutely. Why? Because if we don't come to him in repentance, what is there between us and our Lord when we sin against him, when we usurp his throne, when we twist his words? There is damage in that relationship. I mean, just imagine an earthly relationship where I continually do something wrong to a person and never try to restore that relationship. Just continue on as if nothing happened. One of those parties is eventually going to get sick of that, all right? And it's not going to work out. Thankfully, our Lord is long-suffering. He, is, he has steadfast love for his people, and he will never give up on us, thankfully. But what, is, what does it do to us when we have that damage in that relationship? It makes it harder and harder to walk with the Lord, to be around his people, to hear and read his words. You guys probably know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't know about it personally, you know someone who's been through it. But yet we all have probably been through it personally. This time when we just have struggled with sin so much and repentance so much that it just caused us to become hardened in our relationship with the Lord. Why do you think Adam and Eve ran? They knew they had damaged their relationship with the Lord. Repentance restores restores our relationship with Him. It changes that need to run to a need to run to him. It changes our hearts. Turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a famous psalm. This is the psalm that David wrote after he had committed a sin with Bathsheba after he killed Bathsheba's uh, husband. And this is the psalm that he wrote concerning that And so I'm going to read the first little bit of this. Well, actually, the first 12 verses. And understand what's going on here as David comes to the Lord. This is not an unbeliever talking here. This is a believer understanding his own need for repentance. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop. and uphold me with a willing heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Consider that. If you're wondering, if you're if you're fighting against this need to, for, us to repent, or for us to repent to the Lord, there are a lot of Christians that will say, no, the Christian doesn't need to repent. Why did David do it? What was David's prayer? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Have you ever wished... Oh, Lord, I wish it could just be like it was back in the beginning when I was so on fire for you. There's this. There's a need for repentance in all of us. There's a damaged relationship there. It needs to be mended. And it is our end that needs mending. Again, this is not an unbeliever. This is a believer who just sinned greatly. He knew that the Lord was the one that could clean him and must clean him. So that their relationship must be restored. So that David could continue the work that he had been called to do. And that brings us to the next point. John is a man with a particular calling. Peter's told of his own calling here. Look at verse 17. Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, and will carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he said, follow me. Some say this describes Peter's crucifixion. It's not 100% certain that Peter was crucified, but many historians believe that's the case. Here we have the Gospel of John. The Apostle John writing this, it seems to indicate that that's probably the case. Nonetheless, we do know that Peter was martyred for his faith and that this was the path that he was to take. But what else was he to do? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. What is Jesus talking about here? Remember Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and my sheep hear my voice and they come to me and there are other sheep who are not of this fold and they have to come as well. Peter feed my sheep. What do we see in the book of Acts? The sequel, as it were, we see Peter doing that. We see him going across the countryside, starting churches. We see him raising up elders. He as an under shepherd of the Lord, raising up other under shepherds that they may continue the church. Why? Because Peter's a man. He doesn't have very much time left. They're going to get him. They're going to kill him. And so that is Peter's job. How could he do that? Because the Lord restored him. He restored him and he was able to do that. But Peter looks at John. He says he Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he said to Jesus what about this man? Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. And he was wondering if John was going to have to follow Jesus the same way that he was going to have to follow him. Was John going to have to go to his death? And we do this quite a bit, right? We know what we're called to do, but we want to make sure that everyone does an equal share of the work. We do that in the church sometimes, maybe. Mostly in our own in our regular lives. But in the church, even we look around, we want to see what other people are doing. What did Jesus do? He rebuked Peter for doing this. What is that to you? You follow me. John, what was his work? To testify to the work of Jesus in his gospel, in his three letters, in the book of Revelation. All of these were testimonies of John. And in verse 24, we see that. We know that the testimony is true, that this is the disciple who wrote these things down. And even in verse 25, I love this passage, you know, that, that there are many other things, so many so that if we were to write them down, the world cannot contain them. How is that? Well, if you think about Jesus being the creator of all things, he had done a lot of things since the beginning of time. And you couldn't also contain the books if you just wanted to talk about Jesus being the Redeemer. Choosing a people for himself. Bringing about their redemption through his death and through his resurrection. Interceding for them at the right hand of the Father. Can we ever begin to write down all that Jesus has done for us? No. But we have been given a particular calling. John was given a particular calling to write these things down. John was not martyred per se for his faith. He was kind of put on an island to die. But he was given a particular calling. Peter, the other disciples were all killed for their faith. But they were to raise up the church. What has he called us to do? And we look all around this room, we see different vocations, different skills, different gifts. Why would the Lord have us use them? For his glory. To see his kingdom come. You follow me. Don't worry about what this man is doing. You follow me. And so, in conclusion, do we ever feel slighted in this way? I mean, it's kind of like the end of the movie. You sit, you wait for the credits to end, the after credits scene is done, or maybe there isn't one, or maybe you're like, I didn't want the sequel to go that way. It's not what I was looking for. I mean, do you ever think that your own calling is nothing compared to the calling of others? I think we often think that. Remember John the Baptist? Disciples asked him way back in, or his disciples asked him way back in chapter 3, if it bothered him that Jesus was now baptizing more than he was baptizing. What did John say? I think he said what we all need to say. He must increase. I must decrease. Brothers and sisters, may the things that we do only ever point others to Jesus Christ. Whether we're called to preach the gospel from the pulpit, kill the sick, build stuff, stay at home with kids, whatever it is. It should be about Jesus and what he did. It's the message that we have. We have no other message in the church. That's what this book is about, what Jesus did. Ultimately, he died. He rose from the dead and went to be with the Father so that you and I could have eternal life. That's our message. And we carry that message no matter what we've been called to do. And so let us continue, brothers and sisters, let us continue in repentance daily. Because it's in that repentance that we're going to be restored in our relationship with our Lord. It's in that repentance that we're going to be restored to the joy of our salvation, where He first called us to whatever we've been called to do. As we seek to live in peace, with our Lord, this daily seeking of restoration that repentance brings, and then let us embrace the calling that we have to preach the gospel that others might believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, Lord Jesus. As we come to the end of this book, Lord, let us take to heart what has told us that we believe in You, that we might have eternal life, and that our message might be the gift of eternal life that you have given. You call a people to yourself. Lord, help us to preach to all people. Help us to bring this message of truth and hope to everyone that we come in contact with. To preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, throughout this community. Lord, help us to lift up your name so that you might increase, so that we might decrease. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.